Uh, it's time to introduce the final speaker for the symposium. And um, there is an interesting history to this model uh, organism. Uh, it started with one of the greats of phage biology, George Streisinger, who chose it for uh, reasons that are probably best left to history. Uh, but nevertheless, George was one of the smartest guys uh, uh, that there was. Uh, and uh, it was one of these things where everybody thought that this was crazy. Okay, uh, you know, start with a vertebrate swims around in tanks and things of this sort. And then uh, what happened after a very long latent period, uh, this thing took off and is becoming, you know, one of the, as Jerry Fink says, the card-carrying model systems. And it fits neatly in a, a, a missing link between the mouse on the one hand, which is close to us but really hard to work on, and Drosophila, which is sort of far from the, from the action uh, uh, for vertebrate issues. And uh, our next speaker uh, is really responsible for the fact that this, this thing uh, took off. And she's going to tell us where it is now. And so Yanni Nusslein, and I want to thank her especially for having schlepped here from Germany to do this. Thank you. Thank you. So the zebrafish was chosen, as David has already told you, by George Streisinger about at the same time when Sidney Brenner chose the worm as a model organism. And in fact, zebrafish has taken longer than the, than the worm. And this is, of course, also in part due to the bigger size and the larger number of genes, I guess. Um, we, we, we started working with the zebrafish um, when we still were heavily involved with fly work. And the rationale at the time was that at, the, at this time that was sort of the mid-80s or so when I started thinking about working with fish was that it was not at all clear that Drosophila was uh, helping us much uh, in understanding vertebrate development. At the time it was not yet discovered uh, that, that, that many of the developmental mechanisms were highly conserved in evolution and that one could in fact learn much more than we at that time thought from model organisms such as Drosophila and the worm uh, for also understanding a, a mouse and human development. Um, but the rationale was that we had, had experienced how, how well suited Drosophila is for studying developmental processes using genetics as an approach. And in vertebrates, this approach could not be, be used at the time. And the most um, the, the most studied organisms were chicken and, 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 and frog, and it's I mean, you just don't, don't think in genetic terms in these organisms. At that, at, at, at that time, people thought that it was all very, very different. And so um, the idea to use zebrafish and essentially repeat what we've done in Drosophila was coming from the fact that we wanted to apply genetics. So forward, genetic approach using, using uh, mutants as tools to identify important components. And in part, we have been successful in doing so, but in the meantime, until we had sort of gotten ready and had isolated all the mutants, many of the processes were already had, had been discovered in, in, worms, uh, in, in uh, using, using uh, other methods in, in mice, the knockout methods, and in frogs, the, the uh, dominant negative interaction type approaches, and lots 
of the, 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 the basic um, processes of gastrulation, for example, neurogenesis and so on, have been, have been worked out already. But there are some processes which I, I don't know, I think we still don't understand very well. And one of the processes um, which I think the Zebrafish is particularly well suited for is, is to study cell migration in the living organism. And there are lots of processes involving cell migration, and little of it is known. For example, in, in vertebrates, we have the neural crest cells, which we do not have in flies, and uh, they form various structures of the adult body shape, and, and uh, it's essentially uh, the processes, how they do that, are not, not very well understood and studied, and I think this is a big field for, for the zebrafish, and I will show you some examples of uh, processes where migrating cells find their targets, and uh, molecules they use in the genetic analysis. So, but l let me first just summarize quickly what, what has been done on zebrafish in terms of systematic approaches, developing tools, and so on. So the big properties, as I mentioned, are that you can combine a beautiful embryogenesis. In fact, it is, is certainly as beautiful as frogs. I think better, but uh, you can debate about that. It takes place outside the female organism, of course. You can do forward genetics, you can do systematic mutational uh, searches and identify genes by means of mutant phenotypes, and it is a vertebrate. And as a vertebrate, it's more close to human diseases, as we have discussed this morning. It's a hot topic of modern biology. So the properties, uh, it's efficient, it needs tanks, it has a rather large space requirement, has a generation time which is comparable to that of the mouse. Uh, on the other hand, it has uh, it, it produces eggs on a regular basis and, and a large number of eggs per mating, and this is two, 200, e 200 eggs approximately in, in a mating per week per female, and this, of course, allows a genetical analysis with ease. Generation time, as I said, about four months or so. <coughs> Lifetime is, is a good thing that you can keep them for long and you can uh, repeatedly use them for egg production. Um, the genome is half the genome of, of the... <laughs> Mammalian genomes, mouse and humans, they have 25 chromosomes, not a great property, but one learns to, to live with that. The biggest, I mean, I think that the real, real great reason to use zebrafish is a transparent embryogenesis, which is, takes place in, 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 a, in an embryo, which is, I mean, in, 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 the, in the petri dish and not inside the female and it takes place in a rather short period of time and within 24 hours an animal is formed which has all the basic features of a vertebrate. It has a, a, a notochord, it has the somites, it has a, a large brain anlage and a large eye anlage and the otic vesicle and, and lo lots of features which are typical for a vertebrate organism. And this is happening within 24 hours. Amyogenesis starts with fertilization. The, the big uh, clear egg cell sits on top of a large yolk, which, is which is, it contains all the nutrients which are required until day five when the embryos start, the, the hatched larvae start feeding on their own. The early development is characterized by synchronous uh, cleavage divisions until these uh, about 2,000 to 4,000 cells spread around the yolk, and then gastrulation commences at the particular, at the future dorsal side, a thickening. The, the cells converge to this site and then migrate inwards, upwards to form a germ band and the head is developing at this position and the tail is developing at this position. And from that time on, it's a real clear-cut axial development. And you see with further development, the somites are forming 
one somite at uh, every half hour, but it off in the paraxial mesoderm. And then, as I said, at the 24-hour stage, you see all the structures, and it takes another day, then they hatch, and then at five days, they start feeding. Just want to show you a movie. Hmm? Sorry. Of an early embryo dividing. So this is now cleavage. All the cells divide synchronously, and then you see the spreading around the the yolk, and then the gastrulation commencing here, cells migrating upwards very quickly, forming the, the mesoderm. The somites are budding off now here, one every half hour. And the eye anlage, the ear anlage. So maybe you just look at it once more. It's quite beautiful. And you can see that it is not difficult to follow individual cells through development, even without much lineage tracing. This is a this is now a, a, a compound microscopic picture, but you can see very much already in the stereo microscope. And you can label individual cells using fluorescent dyes and do fate mapping studies and so on. That has been done beautifully in the lab of Chuck Kimmel and co-workers. And they worked out much of the early embryology. The tools we have, I mentioned external fertilization, synchronous embryonic <laughs> development in the optically clear embryo. There are some genetical tricks which we can use, which are very useful. We can have haploid development. We can homozygose embryos from haploid embryos which, with, with, with various treatments. And this provides shortcuts for the search of mutants. We can also, this is very important, we can freeze the sperm and keep stocks. We can keep very large numbers of stocks this way without the needs, the necessity of propagating them alive. The genetical tricks have been developed only recently. In our lab, we developed protocols for large-scale ENU mutagenesis, which works fine with an efficiency which is comparable to that in flies. Insertion mutagenesis protocols have been worked out and are used, being used now in, in Nancy Hopkins' lab in MIT. Transgenesis is a routine procedure now. It works well with all sorts of constructs. What we cannot do yet is homologous recombination. But uh, there is a new technique which really revolutionized the field. This is the morpholinium knockdown technique, which is similar to the RNAi technique where you um, inhibit uh, RNAs. And in this case, the morpholinos are uh, modified RNA oligonucleotides, which are homologous to the translational start site. And when you inject them into the one-cell stage embryo, they faithfully copy mutant phenotypes by knocking out the translation of the emergent RNAs. And one can very easily assess uh, phenotypes of known cloned genes in fish by doing this morpholino technique. And this really has sped up, is speeding up the progress in this field tremendously because it's also fairly easy to do double mutants and triple mutants that way. And uh, it, it is something which has uh, greatly enriched our repertoire of, of, of very powerful methods. Um, genomic tools have also been developed. Genetic maps have been constructed using uh, um, polymorphic markers. Radiation hybrid map has been constructed in, in two laboratories, and a physical map is on its way. We have um, now 20 times coverage of, of uh, fingerprinted backs and are assembling them now, and this gene sequencing project has also been started. I'll come to that. So what we've done about... Ten years ago or so, we, we set, out, set out to do a very large-scale systematic mutagenesis screen uh, using a conventional inbreeding scheme where the males are mutagenized, mated to females in the next generation. The 
the F1 fish will be heterozygous for mutagenized genome, and you have to breed them another generation into, in order to have sibling males and females which carry the same mutation, and in inbreedings, uh, uh, with, with the chance of one in four, you have parents of the same, carrying the same mutation, and then you identify a mutant uh, in 25% of the progeny of such a mating. This is a lot of work. At the time, we spent, we spent a year or so with 12 scientists screening for a, a very large number of different traits at successive days of development to see whether we, we could identify interesting mutants. And we recovered about 1,200 mutants and identified 350 or so genes, affecting all sorts of important and less important uh, features of development. Recently, we have repeated such a screen. In this case, we did it quite differently, and we realized in the first screen that it's not so easy for an unexperienced uh, scientist to recognize subtle changes in all odd traits. So in this screen, um, we did it again with, as a collaborative effort with many scientists, but each scientist scored for just one particular trait, and we also used invasive assays in this case. And we split up the embryos in batches, and these batches were successively screened by different scientists using different assays, in total 22 assays. And this is just summarizing a little bit. Here are the six batches, and then you see that uh, several, several things have been looked at by various people, and at the end, usually, there's an invasive assay where the embryos have been fixed and stained for an antibody or in situ hybridization or anything else. And this was done in collaboration with the pharmaceutical company Artemis who focused on angiogenesis. And you see they had one batch for themselves which no one had, could touch in order to be able to identify, to really saturate for this particular trait. In our lab, I will talk about two aspects uh, of, of uh, where, where also Mutants have been used, and the one is neural crest mutations studied by Darren Gilmer, and then Holger Knaut screened for mutations affecting germ cell migration, and I will talk about this, but the others I will not talk much about. I mean, this sort of takes time until we've sorted all this out and cloned the genes and investigated the phenotype, so usually people start with collecting very many mutations. At the end, they just focus on one. And uh, it takes a long time to sort that all out. Uh, this is just an example that we have now mapped 400 of the mutations on the, placed it on the, on, the, on the polymorphic map. And this is the summary of the ongoing sequencing project. The sequencing essentially is done in the Sanger Center in Hingston in, uh, uh, and by Jane Rogers and Richard Darwin's groups. And uh, at present, we have a coverage of about five times shotgun sequencing, and this is already extremely helpful because people can already search for genes which are homologous to other genes in, in vertebrates and find them. And uh, it is, we hope that, that the, 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 um, the sequence will be finished in the, in the next couple of years or so. But this is already now coming very useful and cloning gets much faster with having all these material available now. Okay, the first story I would like to tell you is that story about germ cell migration studied by a graduate student and later postdoc in my laboratory, Holger Knaut. And as you, as you know, in, in, in germ cells in all higher organisms are set aside very early in development, and they follow a particular developmental program which keeps them uh, intact and, and, and reserves them for the future production of eggs and sperm. And there are some markers which are uh, universally conserved among 
marking the germ, germ cells in, in many organisms, and the most popular marker is VASA, which has been originally identified by Trudy Schüppach as a gene in flies, marking also being expressed, uh, marking where the protein is concentrated in the germ cells. And uh, Nancy Hopkins's lab has isolated the zebrafish homologue, and she found, and their lab found, that in in zebrafish, it's not the protein, but it's the RNA that is labeling the germ cells. And it gets into the germ cells or marks the germ cells in a very peculiar manner. And this is illustrated here in these drawings, and these are in situ hybridizations made by Holger. So the VASA RNA is present in early fish embryos, in the one-cell stage fish embryos in granules, which are decorating the cortex of the, of the, the, the cells. And then when the cells are dividing, these granules are sort of concentrated, brushed together underneath the, the cleavage furrows, furrows, such that they end up in four spots at the four um, the cell membranes which, which, which make up the four-cell stage embryo. And you see at, even at later stages of development, you just have these four spots, and these are four cells which contain these vasa RNA-containing granules. And these granules then... Uh, passed on to the, to the daughter cells until at the end of cleavage um, they start dividing and the, in, 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 in the initially asymmetrical cleavage divisions are um, now uh, undergoing symmetrical cleavage divisions until you have four clusters of about 16 cells each, uh, eight, 8 to 16 cells each in these four centers, and these then later on migrate to the future germ, to, to the future gonad, which is situated at the eighth somite, uh, flanking the right and left part of the, of the axis. And you see how, how these, how these uh, granules are brushed together in early cleavages, you see that most of them do not end up in the germ cells. Uh, but, but get, later get lost, but the ones which do, they just form these lumps, and you can do um, electron microscopy and to see that this RNA really is in such granules, and it's probably homologous to the polar granules and to the granules, the pea granules in, the, in worms, which harvest. In, in, but in this case, it's the RNA and not the protein which is in these granules. Here you see the transition from the asymmetrical cleavage division the RNA, the, 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 the RNA stays in one cell because this, the, there is an asymmetrical division which where only one of the two daughter cells uh, inherits this lump of, of, uh, of RNA-containing granules. And then later on, this is, uh, the, 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 the um, divisions get symmetrical and then more than one of the daughter cells also receive this RNA. Uh, incidentally, it's this, this transition from asymmetric to Symmetric cell divisions does not depend on DNA synthesis, but also takes place in, in cleavage embryos, which do not have replicating nuclei. So it must be a maternal trigger. Vasa protein occurs rather at the late stages of, of the sphere stage, when you still see the RNA, uh, the, the maternal RNA, and then the protein is made, but then soon thereafter also the uh, zygotic RNA is made, and the and you see here that this is now um, antibody labeling where, the, where the, at three days of development you see these germ cells clustering in the future gonad at the heights of the eighth somite. And these are just um, the germ cells where you see that uh, the coexistence of, of the vasa RNA and the protein in these, in these germ cells. Um, so the 
question is now how does this RNA get targeted to these granules and can we use that as, as a, can we use this process of targeting these granules or these germ cells with the VASA RNA and protein in order to trace the migration of the germ cells. And to this end, Holger investigated the 3' UTR of, VASA, uh, of the VASA RNA and found that it is faithfully targeting uh, messenger RNAs of reporters, in this case a GFP reporter, into the germ cells. And you see that, uh, and he uses a construct where um, the, 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 this, this reporter gene is driven by Xenopus uh, EF1-alpha, ubiquitously transcribed promoter, and then the RNA is, is in, in, in such a cross, the female um, has this, tran uh, this transgene and the male does not, and so uh, the half of the progeny will only have the maternal transcript, whereas the other half also will, will transcribe the GFP reporter from the zygotic genome. And when you look at the ones which have only the maternal transcript, you can see that the VASA, uh, the green fluorescent protein really is, is targeted via this 3'-UTR to the germ cells. And this is an in situ hybridization. I can't see it. Maybe you can, but I don't have glasses. You see here the in situ hybridization reveals the, the transcript, the GFP transcript. And these are the germ cells now where you see the endogenous VASA RNA in red and the GFP in these cells in green. And, in late in, and then you can also just look at the GFP in sphere stage. You see here four, four darker uh, GFP expressing cells. And then and this is that at the, German, at, at the German stage, where to the right and to the left, you have these clusters of germ cells which are labeled with GFP. And you can then use this to follow, to observe in time-lapse movies these germ cells migrating through the embryo. This was an early stage, it starts again, where the notochord is just forming here, and then the somites are forming here, and then the, 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 these, these, these germ cells come from the four clusters, condense here at, this, at the height of the second somite approximately, and then migrate down the length of the embryo until they then side up at the eight somite or so. So this is a rather elegant way to label these germ cells and follow their migration and use this as a tool to understand how these germ cells find their target, namely the gonad. In the screen, Holger identified one mutation which turned out to be very interesting. It is called Osdysseus because in this case, the germ cells do not find the gonad. And this is the wild type control where you see the labeling. This is now a protein labeling of the gonad with the, with the germ cells. And in Odysseus, the germ cells do not end up here, but they just migrate and end up in odd, odd places in the body. You can see, you still detect them rather late in development. These fish are perfectly viable, and they grow up to, adult, to adults. And we could not at that time see any other defects in them. And this is now showing a movie again. This is a vital control. We just see this migration along the, along the, the somites, six somites or so. And you also see that they cluster and they stay together and then some, sometimes come off and then they find the others and co-migrate to the, to the future site of the gonad. And in the mutant, um, here is the head, by the way. This is the head region. This is the tail region. These germ cells just uncontrolled. They just travel wherever they, they like. 
Actually, sometimes they apparently are trapped in the gonad, and then these fish will be fertile and produce only mutant progeny in, in, in favorite, inappropriate matings. And this is also very useful to study these mutants. Holger was interested in asking the question whether this mutation would be affecting germline migration autonomously or non-autonomously, and whether the mutation actually, the gene was required in the germ cells themselves or in the surrounding, in the, in the, in the future target. And for this purpose, he did cell transplantations between mutant and wild-type tissues with appropriate labeling. In the, the, trans, the donor cells are always marked here in red with, with, with the, the biotin dextran labeling, and the endogenous cells are marked in green. And you see that when he transplants wild-type cells from the blastula stage into, into um, recipient wild-type embryos, you see that some of the, the, the donor cells end up in the gonad. However, when one transplants the wild-type cells into the mutant host, they don't, uh, the wild-type cells end up in the gonad, but the mutant cells you see are spread all, all over the place. And this means that the gene is required in the germ cells themselves and not in the target, or in the gonad. And so it's the cell autonomous property of the, of the germ cells. Holger cloned the gene and turned out to be a chemokine receptor belonging to the to the, uh, to the group of G-protein-coupled chemokine receptors, CXCR4. And it turned out that in fish, this gene is duplicated. And it's a common, it's a, it's a well-known known receptor. And in mice, it has been studied in knockout mice. But people haven't seen this germ cell migration phenotype because apparently um, the, the fact that in fish, the receptor is duplicated, and this particular the, the receptor form, namely the CRC, CXCR form B, is just affecting a subset of the functions, whereas uh, the, the other form, apparently we haven't studied that, but uh, leads to, to this variety of, of different, different phenotypes. You see also that this receptor family is affecting very many processes of cell migration. It has a cognate ligand, which is SDF1, and uh, this appears also to work in the fish. And we have done morpholinal knockdowns of the, of the ligand of this SDF1 and also of, the, of this, uh, of this uh, chemokine receptor and found that it produces the same phenotype, namely that the germ cells cannot find the, the, the gonad. Uh, the receptor is expressed at various places in the body, and it's certainly also required for other processes. We haven't studied that yet. Um, but you do see that they are also expressed in the germ cells with the double labeling. And one cute experiment Holger did, he misexpressed the ligand by transplanting uh, cells from embryos where he just had injected a large, a large copy number of RNA encoding for the ligand. And then you sometimes see that the germ cells are, are targeted to, to the wrong sites in this embryo, and this supports the view that this is the receptor ligand pair which is responsible for the um, pathfinding and uh, homing of the, of the germ cells in, 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 in the zebrafish and probably also in other animals, actually. Another story we have been studying is in the lab is, is, is um, initially had been started by trying to understand the migration of neural crest cells, which arise from the, from the dorsal ridge of the, 
of the nervous system and migrate to various portions of the body. But this now has, has been sort of concentrated on a story uh, of the formation of the lateral line, which is a peripheral sense organ system, uh, which uh, actually is a case of co-migration of various cell types, which uh, co-migrate coordinately and form this organ. And there are three, uh, this is the lateral line organ, and this is the mechanosensation organ, and these are neuromas, these are, these are bundles of hair cells which are scattered all over the body of the, of the fish, and they sense gravity and they also sense um, stimuli from, from the moving water and, and other, and, and other mechanosensations. And in the larva, they are arranged in a longitudinal row of about seven or so of these sense organs along the lateral line, and each, each organ is composed of a bundle of such hair cells, which are also the same type of hair cells which are also present in the inner ear and are re required for hearing. And actually in the lab, Teresa Nicholson has studied these hair cell bundles, and this is a picture from her work where she, where she just did this. Uh, this is a scanning EM where you see how these bundles look like. They're in the skin of the larva. And, and um, they're, they're arranged along the a structure which separates the dorsal and ventral portion of the mus muscles of the myotome. And this structure is called the horizontal myoseptum, and it is lined with an axon, which is, a, which is, is traveling along this horizontal myoseptum, and is surrounded by, by, covered by glial cells. And these glial cells are here labeled with a GFP uh, construct. I think I have in the previous slide. This is a GFP driven by, by FKD6 promoter, which is uh, expressed predominantly in, 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 in NeuroQuest derivatives. And this has been made by Diane Gilmer in order to mark these glial cells which line the lateral line axon. And this, these axons innervate then these neuromasts in later stages of the larval life. There are three components now of this posterior lateral line system. These are the neuromasts which make these bundles of hair cells and they're derived from a plug hole which is sitting next to the ear and drop off, migrates towards the posterior and then drop off these these bundles of cells which then make these, neuro, uh, these bundles of hair cells. And there is this axon, which is also emanating from the same position and traveling along the horizontal myoseptum. And finally, the, the glial cells, peripheral glia, which are neuroquest-derived. And they all come together and make this, this sense organ. And the question Darren posed was simply at the beginning, just glial axon interaction. Who is guiding whom? Is the glial cells, are the glial cells guiding the axon? Are the axons guiding the glial cells, or are they both following the same cue independently? And to this end, he labeled both independently. The axon, he can label by just applying di-i to the placode, and then the axon, the outgrowing axon bundles will be labeled with di-i and can be followed in, um, in time-lapse movies. Do you see here these axons? I think we should. Can I do that myself? <laughs> Bottom. You see these axon bundles traveling along the horizontal myoseptum with a speed which is quite rapid. It's about half an hour per somite. So this is occurring in, in a couple of hours that you can see that in the living embryo in time-lapse movies. And you can do the same labeling or the same time-lapse movie. Of course, this is done in the same fish now with the 
glial cells. And these glial cells, these are not, these are single cells which you sometimes see even dividing. So it's, they're very closely connected to the axon and you see in gross morphology the, the shapes are looking very similar to the, to the axons, but these are individual cells which apparently are always very close to the axon. And we can of course do a, a double labeling and then investigate that. And Dan has done very many cases and it's not easy to decide, but you can see sometimes you see the axons ahead of the glial cells. And very rarely you see the glial cells or never you see the glial cells ahead of the axon. And from this, uh, it means that they are very close together. And this means perhaps the, the axons are guiding the glia rather than the, way, the other way around. And in order to confirm this finding, um, Dan ablated the axon and just asked the question whether the glial cells would then also stop and you see that that um, in the one side, post-ablation, the glial cells do stop, and on the other side, they have passed much farther to the posterior. So they are dependent on the axons growing out. One can also investigate axon and glial co-migration in a number of mutant genotypes where the axons go astray. For example, this is a mutation where the, the somites are not orderly arranged called fused somites, and then the axons just often make curves and deviate, and the glial cells always follow. One can also investigate mutations where the neural crest cells do not migrate out of the neural um, out of the dorsal part ridge of the of the uh, central nervous system, and this is a mutation called colorless, which is homologous to SOX10, and these embryos our larvae are colorless because all the pigment cells also can't migrate out of the uh, out of the dorsal ventral, uh, out of the dorsal nerve cord and in these uh, in these mutant embryos there is no glia but there is an axon and when i get this to work this axon migrates properly and it does not need the glia so this means that the glia is dependent on the axon for pathfinding, and it follows the axonal cues. But who is guiding the axons? This is just to show that the glia does have a function later on. Uh, glialless axons result in defasciculation, and one can also rescue this phenotype by transplanting wild-type phenotype, wild-type um, cells into the mutants. And when you have glia, you see the axon is bundling, and when you don't have glia, they don't. Um, so if the axons are guiding the glial cells, who is guiding the axons? And so we looked at the plug holes. Looking at the plug holes is not, we don't have a special label now for the plug holes, but what, um, so the neuromast organs, this is a long um, plug hole, and it has already been discovered at the beginning of last century that they, the, the plug hole migrates posteriorly and then drops off the individual organs in, cl in clusters of cells. And you can see this migration in a strain where all the nuclei are labeled with a histone GFP tag, and you see now this group of cells traveling along the horizontal myoseptum. And you also see that some, sometimes cell groups are sort of dropped off and uh, split up. And this, this, this is a real, um, it's like a slug or something like, like that, traveling along this, this path of the horizontal myoseptum. Actually, exactly as the axon is doing it, you see, this is the same animal where you see the axon traveling along the horizontal myoseptum. And when you look at them together, you see here that it's, it seems as if the, 
It's the um, plug holder cells which are ahead, and the axon is following. It's not, not completely easy to decide from one of these movies because you have focusing problems and you might, might not really see it. So you have to do more experiments to confirm that. And one experiment is to do a morpholino and knock out the axon. And there is fortunately someone else has, I can't, a German in Judith Eisen's lab has found that when you knock out neurogenin, it's one of the neurogenic genes with homologies to Drosophila neurogenic genes, when you, when you knock this out, then you don't, you just ablate specifically this lateral line axon. But you see that the placards are still there. So apparently the placards can migrate without, placodal cells can migrate without the axon. You can also see that by, by looking at the placodal cells in the same embryo. So the, the lateral line axon is lacking, but the placodal cells do migrate along the horizontal myoseptum. So here it appears that the axon is dependent on the placodal cells migrating. To our great surprise, we found that the same gene which is guiding the germ cells to the gonad is also guiding the plug holes along the horizontal myoseptum. When Darren looked at Holger's mutant Odysseus, he found that there are just only the anterior plug holes, the anterior neuromasts formed, and the posterior are lacking. And actually, the plug holes cells stop migrating in these mutants. And this is the second phenotype. I should mention that both the germ cell migration phenotype and this placodal phenotype has been observed by other people, other laboratories, RSRAS and the lab of Alain Guizin using morpholino knockdowns. When we, in parallel to us, I mean, it just came out at the same time. We cloned the gene and they had, had these knockdowns and they, they got the same results. So when you look at the expression of this receptor in the placodes, you see that they are heavily, they are, they are, they are, the, the, the receptor is, is in fact expressed in the placards, and this is, is, is consistent with the, with, the, with the finding that in the knockouts, in, in the mutants, um, the, the placard can't migrate. And this is now another labeling where you can see earlier on um, the placards labeled with another marker are absent, and you see in the wild type it's traveled along, and in the mutant there is just only one of these and neuromasts, the anterior most. And, the, and this is now in quite old embryos where, the, where the, the axon should have migrated to the posterior end already. You see that it stopped, and it stopped because the placards can't migrate. And this is now looking at the, the ligand. The ligand is STF1A. Again, there is a pair of ligands, and it's this one which is the ligand apparently for this chemoattractant pair of receptor and ligand, and it's expressed neatly where it should be, namely along the horizontal myoseptum, and it also has another path, and this is actually the site where the germ cells would home. And it does explain why the placode migrates along this lateral, lateral horizontal myoseptum. And now, this is now a different labeling. The ligand is now labeled in, in green fluorescent, and this is the axon. And when we look at mutants where, as I introduced before, the fused somite mutation, for example, then um, in odd places the, the ligand is not, in, not any longer expressed, and this is an irregular pattern. And sometimes you find that the axon, in, 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 as a consequence, jumps to the other side where the ligand is expressed. And you see here this curve it makes to hit the next side of expression of the, of the ligand. In other cases, it just stops, 
and turns back on its own and cannot go ahead when the ligand is no longer present at, on, along this path. And one can also see that in, in a neat and recent time-lapse movie, time and recent means two days ago or one day ago or something like that. So this is the axon which cannot, just cannot go ahead because yeah, the ligand is, li is lacking and it turns back and you can also do that in, in a double labeling with a, with a placard where you see that the placard cells, when they don't know where to go, they make whirls and turn back on their own in a very curious pattern. And the question here remains also, are both axon and placard following the same cue or is one following the other? And to this end, in order to decide that, uh, Darren made a, made a sort of complicated experiment where the Behi, I mean, they could both, both the axon and the, and the placodal cells could express the receptor and migrate along the path made by the ligand. And in order to, dis, to distinguish that, I mean, following the same cue independently or following a different cue, um, namely the placodal cells following the, the ligand, whereas the axon is following something which is emanating from a placode, Dan made a complicated experiment where he transplanted axons which come from a receptor minus embryo into a wild-type embryo where, they, where he knocked out the endogenous axon in order to see whether these axons then would still be able to, 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 to follow the cue. And he sees that um, the CRC-deficient axons can still travel along uh, and follow the, the, the placodal cells. And this means that the placodal cells probably emanate another cue, which is recognized by the axons because it cannot be uh, the CRCX, um, the CR, <laughs> this chemokine receptor uh, <laughs> ligand pair. So the present model is that, the, that there is this ligand um, sort of expressed along the path where these, these cells should migrate and the migrating primordium is following this path and the axon is guided by the primordium and the glial cells are uh, following the axon. And this is, I think, what I can tell you about this system and just we are now elaborating on this. This is very recent stuff and, and, and Darren and uh, collaborator Frauke van Weber are now investigating a number of different mutants which are affecting this same path and we hope that soon we will have sorted out some of the unanswered questions and, uh, and use this system of the zebra fish which has several unique properties as I hope I have explained to you to study further processes of, of cell migration in the living embryo. Thank you very much. Excuse me? The germ cells, they follow the same path. So they're both using SDF1. They, 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 they use SDF1 as a ligand, but the, the ligand is expressed in many more other places, and we don't really know yet uh, how, how they sort that out. 
But Holga observes when sometimes the germ cells go astray and they end up in places where we now see that the ligand is highly expressed. And there might also be additional components, repellents, which sort of guide, channel them. For example, in the horizontal myosectum, there is a, there is a, at the same time, is clear of, of a repellent which is present at the right and left side and sort of channels the cells there. Yes. Okay. So, I'm wondering in the when we act on the diversity of Well, so far we know simply that the, the, the ligand at this place is no longer there. And this correlates with the fact that the axons stop and don't know where to go. It could also be that there's a repellent building up. We don't know that yet. Yeah. Yes. So when you show those beautiful images of the asymmetric to keep the vasa. Yes. You mean after they, when, you have when the they have a symmetrical division? Why shouldn't they? So what, what, are, the, what are the factors that are involved in certain cells keeping the vasa and the others not being equal? Well, the, the, it is not present in the other cells, so it doesn't get from one cell to the other. So no, some, something must keep the vasa in one of the cells. Oh, you, the asymmetric, you mean this clump? Well, well, I mean, we can, can only observe that there is this the condensation of the vasa-containing particles to one clump of cells which is asymm asymmetrically distributed to one of the two spindle poles. And there it stays. And when the cell divides, it just stays at this one spindle pole and then ends up in only one cell. And there is this strange thing where it all, all of a sudden diffuses and, and then, then ends up in two cells. No, we don't, we can't, we can't tell. Yes. I have a few questions. I think one had to do with the migration. And I was wondering how the receptor bound to ligand gets cleaved or gets paralyzed to explain how it's... We, I, I can't tell you. This is probably known from other, I mean, this is a very well studied receptor ligand pair. We are not biochemists. We just saw that. Could be, yeah. For, that, for, the, for the time being, we just have this one, one mutant which is affecting it. But it's interesting that from the morpholino, we can see that the knocking out the ligand and the receptor has the exact same phenotype, although they have very different expression patterns. When, when you, there, is a, there is a whole group of genes which, which um, eliminates the horizontal myoseptum in mutant form. This is the sonic hedgehog pathway, essentially. And we have about six or so genes where mutations knock out the horizontal myoseptum. And in these cases, the axon follows the other path and goes underneath the somites. And in, before we knew about the, the ligand uh, and the receptor, we thought this was, it was actually repel, repulsion from semaphorins, which are expressed um, uh, over the somites, with the exception of the horizontal myoseptum. But now it appears that this is a pathfinding thing, a positive, attracting. Okay, one more. 
I think they have distributed, all the cells have distributed themselves. They, they continue dividing. Maybe you have seen that in the movie. They continue dividing, and, and when they are, I, I guess when they are at the end, they, are, they run out of cells, and then they have distributed their, their clumps of cells along the path, and then these cells differentiate and make these hair, hair cell bundles. Excuse me? So this, this uh, groups of cells that get out of the plate or platform, when they get, to, they get to some target, is that also later on when you have the peripheral nervous system being established? Are those cells establishing the cues that those actions are That the other cells are forming, the next placodal organs. Yeah, they, they also send other codes to, 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 the, to the other side, I mean, when the fish get older. This is not very well studied because we stop looking at these fish when they are five days old, you know. But we might continue to look further now. <laughs>